Welcome to The Glimpse. I'm Adam Lorton, a.k.a. Shark Butler. And I'm Aiden Richards, a.k.a. Omega Man. Are you ready for some lazy, dumbass analysis? Oh man, I'm not willing to be a dick in my fun time. GSL group stages are dumb. Why bother winning if you're not going to get a Mercedes? Sounds great. <laughs> Try to summon a little less enthusiasm next time, Jason. I incorrectly anticipated fart. I'm going to ask you for a lot more details. This, by the way, is super deep analysis you're about to see. Okay, Aiden. All right, Lord. So let's step into it. Welcome to the show, everybody. It's episode 98. Aiden Richards, I'll talk to you in a minute. First, I'm going to welcome back for his third appearance on The Glimpse. You remember him from our TI9 preview where he was early to the hype train for Beast Coast. Uh, I think we've proudly continued that hype train in your absence. You also know him from blowing the whistle on some unethical work practices in Southeast Asia Dota. Scant, Anthony Hodgson, welcome back to The Glimpse. Thanks very much for having me. I always enjoy uh, chatting to you guys. So glad to be here. The feeling is mutual. Aiden Richards, how is distance teaching? Uh, it's mostly fine. Um, wow. It's actually a lot more work. <laughs> um, writing equations on a computer screen is a lot harder than writing them on a whiteboard. That's <laughs> my main complaint. I can believe that. Scant, are you quarantined? Uh, yeah, we are two weeks into lockdown, and it was, well, it was supposed to be a three-week lockdown. It's just been announced last night that it will be extended another two weeks. So till the end of April, as things stand, uh, I leave home to buy groceries once a week. Other than that, I'm pretty much at home 24-7. Yep, that sounds uh, sounds like what we're all experiencing right now. And I guess that's why we're on this podcast is to get a, give everybody a break. Even though there's no fresh Dota content, we can make it, we can freshen there's, it back up. There's some fresh Dota content. That's true. But Nate and I have not said a word about ESL, <laughs> ESL1 regionals. Um, before we get into this rewatchable, I'll quickly remind listeners and viewers uh, that if you're a Discord member, a GlimpsePod Discord member, you don't have to pay any money, but you do get advanced notice of what we are rewatching for the rewatchables, so you can rewatch it too. Uh, if you want to join the Discord, you'd go to glimpsepod.com and click on the Discord link at the top of the page. You can reach any of us on Twitter. Uh, Scant is at Scantzor, S-C-A-N-T-Z-O-R. Aiden is at Omega Man Dota, and I'm at Shark Butler. I'll also remind you that if you want to get the t- the same shirt as Scant, why bother winning if you're not going to get a Mercedes? You can get that at glimpsepod.com slash merch, and 100% of merch proceeds go to audio engineer Jason. And with that, I will say, welcome to the third episode of Dota Rewatchables. This is a deep cut. Epicenter 2016 qualifiers, Southeast Asia, TNC versus MVP Phoenix. Now, Scant, you suggested this series. You cast this series. Why does it stick out in your mind for years later? Firstly, TNC versus MVP was my favorite rivalry of all time in all Dota. And I'm sad that we'll probably never get it again. Um, Looks like MVP is sort of finished. Looks like the Korean scene is kind of finished and mostly moved into, you know, most of the Korean Dota people are parts of other teams now. In fact, some of them are part of TNC. the series in particular stood out to me because it sort of exemplifies how what these teams did for pushing limits in Dota. Um, nowadays, it's very normal that you'll hear people emphasizing the speed of teams' play, and it's a concept that's become almost ubiquitous in commentary. And I think that these are the teams that are actually responsible for adding that to the narrative and adding that to sort of the like group discussion and the group uh, development of all professional Dota. 
um, where that first discussion happened on a big LAN was actually the Shanghai Major. It was where MVP Phoenix had their first big run. They came fourth in that tournament. TNC weren't there, but MVP and TNC were kind of like sparring partners. They scrimmed a lot together. They played a lot together. And a lot of the MVP's uh, strategies and gameplay actually was borrowed from TNC. So I think these teams are are very much responsible for sort of adding that like emphasis on on having to play fast and make decisions fast and and never give up and sort of like push limits. And I think that this series exemplifies it very well. And I, it's very memorable to me that uh, in one of the games in the series, there's actually like a a sub ten minute raxing that happens, and the way that it happens is is very much exemplifies what I'm talking about now. It's it's sort of one team just sort of seeing a window and going for it yeah i agree with you and a little behind the scenes when i watch these rewatchables i'll typically make notes with timestamps, and especially in the late game i'm accustomed to making a note every four to eight minutes um and in these games i was making a note almost every single minute so yeah to your point the pace was fast and uh these are great games to watch as i as i mentioned already to the the fans in the discord so as we start to step into this series, Skint, do you mind giving us a little bit of background about how you saw these teams in 2016? You know, you had mentioned uh, you had mentioned MVP Phoenix's run at the Shanghai Major, and that was certainly in the backdrop here. Aiden and I were arguing, well, arguing is a strong word for it. We were discussing before the podcast what was the peak, what was the actual peak of MVP Phoenix? Was it that Shanghai Major? Uh, they had, I had so much fun watching them in the TI5 lower bracket. They placed top six at TI6. We were just talking to Kips about that last week. What was the peak of that MVP Phoenix squad? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, just because everything in Dota is about TI, it would have to be their best TI placing, which is that top six. Um, but I think as far as the narrative goes, their biggest contribution was the Shanghai Major performance. Because it's 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 a weird case of it doesn't ha- happen that often in Dota, but MVP weren't the team who won the Shanghai Major. They only came fourth, but they were the team we talked about the most. And I, I worked talent for that event as well, and that was the team that sort of defined what we were discussing. Because especially I, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick him up because if you paid attention to Blitz's commentary ever, he's the guy who talks about the most. He he constantly talks about the the speed the teams play at, and mm-hmm. he got. That's when he started doing it. That was at the point at which he sort of became fixated on that. Um, and I think you can you can see if you look at a lot of other teams, if you look at Liquid, if you look at Wings, if you look at how a lot of other teams developed over, over the next year or two, uh, that's sort of the starting point. Um, one of the one of the things that I think exemplifies it best is that they had this Nature's Profit pick that they started using very often, but very very differently. It was almost this turning point in the hero historically because. We, we had kind of 2013 Admiral Bulldog, Nature's Prophet, the ultimate split-pushing hero, but MVP redefined it as a hero that can be extremely active, extremely fast-paced, teleporting to every fight, being involved all the time, and they were constantly overwhelming their opponents all tournament long because they just outnumbered them in every single fight because they had that hero who was there all the time, using teleport every time he could. Um, and I think that represents you know the identity that they brought to, to that tournament and to that whole season. Love it. And then paint, and we know that MVP Phoenix team because they, it's really been the same, it was the same five stack for years MP, QO, Forev, Febby, and Dubu. I'm hoping you can also introduce us to that TNC squad. That TNC squad had two people, uh, Winter G and Teehee, who 
I mean, Aiden and I followed Dota closely, even even four years ago, and those were not names that that sprang immediately to mind as being associated with anybody, much less TNC. So, what was the story of that TNC team at that time? So, uh, Winter G Small Sun is is like this weird case of he was this young kid who they'd recently recruited. Um, his career sort of ended very; it was very short lived because basically, I mean, this is a story that I know from speaking to players on the team. They they won a few tournaments shortly after Winter G Small Sun joined the team, and it kind of went to his head. And there's a, there's a few Filipino players that've been like this that they he he didn't have the correct discipline, he didn't have the correct drive, and so he ended up phasing out of the team. And he still plays pubs to this day, but you won't have seen him in many teams because he, he didn't handle the early success in his career very well, and then kind of just like couldn't stay focused, and you know was going out drinking and partying and not really thinking about the game as a job, if you know what I mean. Um, Tihi, on the other hand, is a much more interesting story. Tihi is maybe my favorite professional Dota player of all time. And I'm biased here because I uh, I have since worked with him. I hadn't worked with him at the time, 2016. But I just absolutely love the guy. He is like what, he's a ball of positive energy. He's super creative. Um, he's very, very fast-paced, aggressive player. And and I I think he's one of the players who he's sort of one of the unsung heroes of the professional Dota scene because he made significant contributions to the mid lane that were never really given to him. And you'll notice if you if you I mean probably you noticed watching the cast for the matches that we're going to discuss here. But if you go back and watch just about any of my casts of uh, TNC versus MVP that year, um, I was always going on about how people give all the credit to MVP, but TNC deserves a lot of it. And a lot of that comes down to Tihi himself. A lot of that comes down to uh, the public was fixated on Cure because there was this thing about, you know, Koreans are here and Koreans are the eSport lords and they're doing all these cool new things, right? But almost everything that Cure brought to the scene, he actually got from Tihi, Um the most notable thing being the new style of mid heroes, which was like the Juggernaut, the Phantom Lancer, those like melee agility heroes that you know bought the poor man shield and just stood there. Like that, that was a Tihi thing. He absolutely started that. They were, he played a lot of Clink's mid at the time as well. The thing that stands out the most to me about Tihi is that he was this player, and he still is. He still plays to this day. He 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 tries to get first blood every single game. He goes mid. And it, you can be guaranteed, if you're casting his games, you, I would say to my, to my co-caster every single time at the start of the game, let's just watch the mid lane for now because this guy's going to try to get first blood. You know he is. He always will. And I, one of the other games I think I suggested to you guys maybe watching was a game where he actually got first blood as a level two slark in the mid lane, which was like one of the most <laughs> outrageous things. But right. he used to do it as clings. So it, I, again, going back to you know what these teams exemplify for me, it's about pushing limits, and I feel like Tihi really, really did that when it came to sort of that early aggression. Love it. Fair. All right, with that, I'm ho- I think we should start stepping into the series. Uh, so what we're talking about, we're talking about the Epicenter 2016 Southeast Asia qualifiers. Uh, neither of these teams ended up qualifying for Epicenter, which is a shame because, I mean, watching this, you can see this is high-level Dota. Um, Aiden, I'm hoping you can summarize the three games at a high level for us. Okay. Uh, game one is MVP. Game one is epic, e- first of all. It's epic, first of all, yes. Um, it's a fairly even game for the first maybe 20 minutes, but the notable thing is, is that Raven on his Sven is getting space, even as TNC is maybe sacrificing other players. And then Sven gets a BKB, and the game 
turns dramatically in TNC's favor. Um, and with the exception of a couple incredible plays by, uh, including one by QO's um, Invoker, MVP seems to be sort of just holding on. And then TNC tries to take the throne and gets within 250 HP, and then but they're all dead with no buyback, and the game ends. It's a shocking. The last 10 minutes is a shocking back and forth, uh, entertaining, entertaining game. Um, uh, game two is a push strat essentially from uh well first actually i'll start game two starts off with mvp sacrificing three or four of their players to a juggernaut at level one which is i feel like even my like 3k pubs know that like you don't fight juggernaut at level one certainly not in a group um uh and it turns into a massive snowball with a furion and a chen um and uh, a juggernaut just pushing um they destroy Ferev's Tidehunter multiple times and he like they've lost a Rax before he's got even got Ravage. Um and then the game is essentially over. It's 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 an amazing like just death ball. And then game three is more similar to game one. Um it is back and forth for the first about 30 minutes. Um the key thing being there where TNC commits to a jungle enigma and sacrifices their lanes. MVP looks like they're going to run away with it, but TNC again tactically fights with three or four heroes, losing the fights while Raven farms, and the game starts to turn, starts to turn, starts to turn, and then it becomes, as Scant puts it multiple times in this game, a question of whether they're going to use who's going to mess up black hole or um, vacuum wall combo first, <laughs> and the answer is TNC messes up first and the game ends. Sound right? Yeah, very nice. All right, and so I want to step into game one. And by the way, uh, folks folks, and Aiden and Scant, I think uh, our main focus here is on games one and two. Game mm-hmm. three was a good game, but it was just like, uh, it doesn't deserve the level of analysis that games one and two do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with that, I'm looking at the draft of game one, and uh, there was a comment that uh, I'm, I'm told from the broadcast in the chat uh, as, they're building, as they're setting up the game, uh, hey, idols, what... So, Scan, can you tell us what, what does Hey Idols mean? So, there's a, a anyone, I don't know if you have a lot of Filipino listeners, but Filipinos will be very familiar with this. It's sort of like a, we, it's one of these strange esoteric sort of Filipino traditions is people call each other idols, which is especially strange considering like how religious like the whole population is. <laughs> but, um, and in, in fact, it's, there's a, there's like a Filipino word, lodi, which is really just the word idol backwards that they also used to call each other. Um, and when I first started casting TNC, what I, so I was casting them very often with Gareth, uh, and they went on this huge run of winning a, a series of small tournaments, and they were beating all these big teams like Fnatic and Mineski and all the known Southeast Asian teams. And at that time, the TNC were nobody. But whenever they beat a team that was bigger status than them, they'd always, they'd always type at the end of the game, GG Idols, and... I, that that was actually like one of the first reasons I fell in love with them because I thought, you know, what humility! Like, how amazing is that? That like after they beat people they respect, they 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 make it clear like how much they respect them. Now it ended up becoming a bit of an in joke between them and MVP because MVP started saying it back to them because there was this kind of flirtation between these two teams uh, that they really looked up to each other and they were kind of role models to each other. And so even to this day, you'll see some of the most diehard TNC fans. Uh, on like social media, on Twitter and Facebook, after big matches, you will see them responding to the players' posts with 
GG Idol or Well Played Idol. Um, it's it's one of those traditions now. That's awesome. Um, the only other thing from the draft I wanted to to note was MVP Phoenix. They picked Invoker and banned PL. And Scant, you made the point in the broadcast that picking PL into Invoker was a thing that TNC had invented um, and that MVP Phoenix had appropriated. Um, and so that this was uh, this was respect back to TNC by banning the PL. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that was like, and that became a thing for quite a while after that, that people were, yeah. you know, PL was this hero that you used to counter the ranged mid heroes very often. And ca- and for us as casual Dota fans, I mean, I associated that ex- exclusively with QO. Yeah. Yeah. And again, so that's, but that's precisely, I mean, and, you know, I was sitting in the lobbies with these players time and time again, they must have played something like 30 series against each other that year. And it's back and forth, but Part of how you know that it's Teehee who started these things is because he's getting the better of Kyo in most of these games. It's almost always Teehee killing Kyo first blood, and Kyo kind of picks up from that over over time. Um, but but Kyo is the guy who had the status and had the limelight, and you know the public knew about. But Teehee didn't really get noticed. And then the really unfortunate thing about Teehee is that he ended up taking a leave of absence for personal reasons in the lead up to TI. And that's when, when the when the broader public outside Southeast Asia first noticed TNC. It's when they made their big TI run and they had gotten Demon. And it wasn't, they hadn't actually kicked T out of the team. He'd decided that he needed a break. Uh, he needed to focus on his health and he wanted to focus on his studies. Um, and that's unfortunate because just the way the narrative developed, I feel like he was like, between T and AU, they were kind of the two foundations of the whole TNC franchise. And... Over time, neither of them are really the ones that are, are are most sort of given that credit, which which I think is is not not quite right. Interesting. I was uh, you I had that question written down. Why does T, why does Te leave? And I guess Cuckoo replaces him sort of, but Demon gets a lot of the credit for it because um, he replaces Wintergy, right? Correct. Uh, I I mean it's I'm not actually I don't have the order in front of me, but I think Cuckoo joined first, right? Oh, interesting. I, I think because when Cuckoo first joined the team, he was playing support. Oh, interesting. Uh, which is also a strange thing because Cuckoo had been playing for Mineski and he was playing one position for Mineski. And he and he had a falling out with Mineski and he joined TNC. And he was actually like this sort of like main enchantress player. He played fire position for quite a while. And I think only when they recruited Demon, Cuckoo became the mid player and Demon uh, played five, which... At, at, at that time, my argument was the main advantage of recruiting Demon was actually that Cuckoo got to play his normal role again because he had sacrificed his role to join the team. And Cuckoo's that kind of player, as you have seen ever since then, like changed his role many times just to be in a right. good team. So I, I have another uh, question about the draft. So there's two, or two more questions about this draft. So the first is the Mid-Jakiro by Tihi. Now, again, as you, as we've just pointed out, none of us, most of us, many of us, I should say most of us, many of us don't remember Tihi and don't know him as a player that much. Was mid, was Jakiro, like a mid Jakiro, was that a thing for him? Or is this sort of a cheese sort of out of character draft for a TNC at that time? No, it was, it was one of his favorite. I mean, so he established himself. First, he was playing mid clinks all the time. Then he started playing Jug and PL and all the other melee heroes. And then Jakiro was sort of like phase three of his development as a professional player. And he, he spammed a ton of Jakiro. And it was, I mean, in a way, you could have said, I think the negative way to look at it, you could have said that TNC back then cheesed a lot. And I've sort of always had the opinion that what people call cheesing is just 
a team's capacity to outdraft you over and over again. Right. It's a it's a strategic win as opposed to maybe a tactical skill win. Yeah. Just as valid, right? <laughs> exactly. And so to give you an idea of that, like at the TI five qualifiers, uh, most of 2015 TNT had already been, I felt like the best team in Southeast Asia. They didn't get it to uh, TI five, and the reason for that is because every team in the Southeast Asia TI five qualifiers first phase banned their draw and their mm -hmm. undying, and that's because they'd been cheesing all year with those two heroes. They had a draw strat and undying strat. And so they sort of had to diversify uh, going into 2016. And so I feel like Jakiro sort of followed that. It was like it was like yet another hero that could bring together a strategy that the team knew very well that they could uh, death ball people with. Um, it wasn't... They weren't the only ones doing it. In fact, I think at the time, uh, Complexity notably liked that mid-Jakiro quite a lot. Right. Um, Kyle was drafting it all the time. But... It was like these two obscure extremes, you know, some small Southeast Asian team and like a, the third best team in North America kind of thing that took Jakira mid. All right. The other, the other question I want to point, and this is less of a question because you answer it in this, in the, um, during the cast is, but I just want to point it out, is the Ember Spirit being played by MP and QO playing the Invoker, which is very much the opposite of what we would normally expect. And I think you say what they've been doing all this time. Um, and at the time you're like, I don't really know. Maybe it's just because they felt like switching it up. Um, you may not remember it, but do you have any further insight about why they made that change that came, like maybe you heard the, asked them about it later? I mean, I I don't actually. It's it's. I, I remember thinking about it, and I think there was another hero as well that they switched around on once or twice that year, which was the, mm -hmm. the Spectre. Um, you know, like mostly Cure would play mid, but it felt like some games, Cure just got to do what he wanted. I will say that my impression of Cure in general as a player and what I learned about him over time is that Cure is a player who only functions in teams that are built entirely around him. He takes up a lot of like sort of emotional space, a lot of uh, a, a lot of you know he takes up a big part of the room. Put it that way. The team needs to be willing to play around him, exist around him. And so, in hindsight, I'd probably guess that it was just kind of like a that he was feeling that hero, and then they deferred to him. Yeah, I, it's I think actually Cure's downfall in terms of his professional career was probably that because. It got to a point where other mid players were just better than him, and then people didn't want to build teams around him anymore. But he had sort of created this identity for himself as, you know, I only exist in a team that's built around right. me. So let's step into the the early game, and I don't have a ton of notes on the early game. It was, you know, a lot of ways it was a battle of the aggressive offlaners. Uh, so you know, you've got the the Sam H Broodmother, you get the Fareb Darkseer going up against the Sven. Um, and the, really, the the main thing of note I saw was the classic MVP four man rotation into the jungle to kill Tihi, where both couriers end up dead. One to AU bounty hunter, one to QO. A really like really fun sequence in the early game didn't end up mattering, I don't think, uh, as the game progressed. But uh, a nice illustration of the character of these teams. Yeah, and and I I think it's worth pointing out that uh, AU actually sniped the career quite a lot of times in that game, and. You know, back at this stage, that was quite a big deal. Like these days, career sniping is a totally different thing in Dota. But uh, I think he was very deliberate about it, and he traded time off the map and allowed his levels to be left behind even a little bit, just to like strategically go for a career at certain points in time. And I think he did a really good job of it in that game. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Again, the other thing to note, I think I already mentioned this again, is is that like MVP is ahead in terms of kills. They're getting the kills. They're winning a lot of these engagements. But if you actually look around um, 10, 12 minutes, 
right? It really has been, it really is a case of Raven and Sam H are farming creeps and MVP is farming heroes. And that's definitely the trade-off you sort of see for a while in this game. Um, in fact, MVP, at that point, MVP only has one death. Um, but it's basically even. It's basically a dead even game. But they're uh, they are leveraging those hero kills into objectives. I mean, as you start going into the mid game, they're taking the tier two top, the tier one mid. Uh, they exchange that for TNC taking the tier one top. Um, but then um, MVP, they get that kill on Raven, who's out of position, and and then they're they're taking the tier two bot as well. So this is where it starts to look like MVP is is gaining the momentum as they take these towers. But then uh, there's a really kind of bizarre fight where it's clear MVP are uh, anticipating a TNC smoke. And TNC does smoke directly into MVP's jungle. And yet still TNC wins the fight easily. And Scant, you had said during the broadcast that it was possible that MVP were experiencing ping issues at the time. But it was interesting because, uh, the, yeah, there was they just grouped up for a, uh, a Stormhammer, Ice Path, Macropire then suddenly Febby, Dubu, and Ferev, they're all dead. Yeah, the, the ping thing actually brings up an important point I wanted to make. Uh, not a lot of people knew at the time, but the Korean teams, they, they were sort of forced to play in Southeast Asia regionally. Um, but their ping to Chinese servers was better than their ping to SEA servers, like just geographically based on where Korea is and how the infrastructure works. And so one of the things that I think is a big deal that's worth noting is the fact that MVP scrimmed against TNC at all because they didn't scrim other SEA teams. They scrimmed Chinese teams. But it was like uh, part of the reason that they sort of were breaking out is that they were uh, an anomaly in that sense. They were practicing against the stronger region. The C teams weren't generally doing that. But then they still managed to make time for TNC because that's how important TNC were to them, um, to their development. But I, I do remember the fight you're talking about, and I remember thinking like it was a little bit funny because it was a very deliberate. It, it felt like a very deliberate bait from MVP, and then they still just got wiped. Yeah, it was it was interesting because they, they set it up. TNC's initially going for uh, MP in the bottom lane, and then MP just like leaves and rejoins with this team, and you're like, oh, MVP saw it coming, and they could have dodged, but they just like they think they can take the fight, and the question is whether they were wrong or whether the ping was an issue. Um, yeah, it's unclear. Yeah. I mean, I will say one thing is that both these teams and maybe even MVP more so had this attitude of, I mean, one of the things that really impressed me the most about these teams is that I don't know how to, it, it's almost like they, they're unwilling to respect the momentum of a game. Like it doesn't really matter if you've lost the last three, four, five fights, they're always going to take the, the coming fights on its own merits. And it was something I always found impressive about both of these teams um, that they were very sort of optimistic and very sort of positive and very sort of forward thinking about, well, how are we going to win this fight? Um, and I think that goes a long way for them. I think it helps, especially when you play a very fast-paced Dota, to be thinking, how are we going to win this fight rather than what could go wrong? It's a great point. And despite losing that fight, MVP, um, they are, they're, they're not that far from going high ground so that um, we don't need to dive into it too much, but MVP does a really nice bait in the rose pit that where they vacuum Raven onto the cliff and he has to TP home they dance around the pit. They send him home again. They pick off Sam H and that uh, taking that Roche then allows them to approach the high ground. This is the, on the dire top lane with Aegis. And this is a big misstep in my opinion from MVP. They blow all their spells on Tihi, the Chikiro, then who walks away basically unharmed. Um, and then Raven walks out 
does his BKB reveal, just destroys QO, pops QO's Aegis. TNC, they keep chasing. They track down QO. Uh, Febby almost saves him, but then Winter G's got the clutch impale. So this turns it into a 5 nothing for TNC. And that was that was the beginning of the TNC turnaround. Yeah, it was great initiation. Um, and just great team fight. But you're right. I mean, it's totally... I mean, Tihi, it was a really... I mean, this is the advantage of the Shakira, right? I mean, like, he baits it. And... QO just misses everything because of a Yule, one single Yule Scepter. Mm. And the game just goes completely the other way. And this, I mean, that's an 8K, I believe it was an 8K turnaround or 8K swing in net worth. And like, you know, I don't think TNC only loses three heroes in the next 15 minutes after that total um, as they dominate. But of course, TNC again at this stage uh, and for many years after that, until basically the, la- the party the most, the last year or two. They were really, really poor at late game. Um, and it was something that MVP said about TNC quite a lot. In fact, they would say, these guys would be beating everyone if not for the fact that they they don't know how to finish out games. So I, I just want to add something. The next thing I have written down, which, by the way, is not not a huge play, but I thought it was really cool, um, is this play by Febby. And all it does is it saves a Dubu from Raven. But Raven initiates on, on Dubu, and Febby manages to throw an ice shards in a horseshoe, basically pinning Dubu against a wall, um, so that the, no one can get at him. So spent like you know that Raven just can't walk at him, and then Dubu swaps Febby into this little like spot that no one can get to, and then Febby blinks out. Wow! And so it's like imagine like like it is like it's such a little play. It's like just like you know I mean who cares if Dubu dies? At that? I imagine it would not have been like we would never have thought back to that moment. But I just thought it was such a cool play of just like. You know, I don't know how it happens. I don't know if Febby's like sw- uh, saying "swap me, swap me." I don't know if Dubu's saying "come here," like you know. But like, just both the execution of the ice shards and the um, uh, and the team play to get it, both of them get away. The swap blink, the swap blink were yeah. awesome. And it's and 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 part of what makes that cool is because it's it's like effort. It like it happens so quickly, mm-hmm. right? It's not like there's a if when you watch it, there's no delay in sort of figuring out, like, if there was a communication, it was a communication that happened in, like, one second. Right. Absolutely. Well, I feel like that tees us up now for, uh, in my opinion, the funniest moment of the entire series. And uh, oh, you said that was not a flashy play. This was, like, seven flashy plays in a row. And I'm talking about the QO wild goose chase from the Roche pit, uh, where <laughs> he... So is it true that four MVP heroes were dead or they just weren't there? Um, in any case, yeah, they're all dead. TNC is attempting Roche, and QO, um, uh, QO throws a few spells into the pit and then runs away. TNC all chases him uh, through the dire second jungle, around the cliff, back down to safety, and so QO's throwing out the tornado, the deafening blast, Yule Scepter, Ice Wall, Blink Dagger. He's tracked. Uh, the spiderlings are chasing him, <laughs> and uh, I'd love to see that on Fast Forward with some of the Benny Hill music because it, uh, it was such a funny sequence and the whole time uh i was thinking at least qo's dead here but but maybe he bought some time and his continuing to make those plays with the octarine and and finally getting out of there um it made me wonder was he the best invoker alive at this time i mean i i think he had probably the highest ceiling at that time yeah. and and that's the kind of like Kuro was this sort of like mad guy who like channeled energy and once he got hyped then he would like he'd sort of like hold himself up and just get in the zone and really go for it. And it leads to those kind of insane plays happening sometimes. Um, I think that that particular sequence is the sequence that's actually been recreated a few times by Miracle 
Yes. Um, so you'll subsequently have seen those exact kind of invoker players by miracle. But I think at the time I hadn't there wasn't there weren't a lot of invokers doing that. So you, you probably could say, yeah, it was a standout play for its time. For sure. And it did look miracle-esque. However, I will th- I do think that that his success in uh in baiting them out, uh, that gives his team time to respawn. And then they attempt to engage a Roche, and then they get wiped. And that was uh that was a bad scene for MVP. M- MVP is like I mean this MVP is a fascinating team to me because like they'll have this amazing play and then they'll do something which I can't remember if if you were uh God, who uh if you were the caster yeah called it called it dumb but it was pretty dumb they definitely definitely called them on it they go and try and roach without him so QL made this amazing play heads top to push top and they go and for, try and roach like so like they completely they've managed to prevent TNC from getting roach and yet they gift them back an opportunity to take it and that's and I really am curious like it would be really interesting to me to be like a fly on the wall and they're like you know decision making on that um because it's just it seems so i don't know i don't i don't know how to describe it it just seems so inconsistent with like this they're making these amazing plays and then giving essentially whatever advantage they gain they give it right back sometimes i think i think in in this particular matchup it happens a lot and the main reason for that is is that uh there wasn't any other team at the time that could match mvp's pace but but tnc could and so i i think that mvp sort of when they have victories they sort of help themselves to things sometimes because usually their opponents aren't as quick as them. Usually they can get this little objective or this, um, but TNC would sort of punish them. It was part of what made the, the matchup so interesting is that TNC over and over and over would match their speed. Well, and knowing that they like to scrim against the Chinese teams, that is MVP likes to scrim against Chinese teams, uh, does make a little does make this make a little more sense. You knowing, especially in 2016, the stereotype of the methodical Chinese style of Dota, uh, it would seem like MVP would be uh, MVP's pace would disrupt that really well. And if they're accustomed to playing at that pace, and as you said, kind of taking a little extra after a, after winning a fight, uh, that sure they would get punished every once in a while when a team would match their pace which would be rare. Yeah, and I mean, even the other SCA teams at the time, Fnatic and Minescu, were very traditional uh, in the way that they approached the game. Um, in fact, part of what makes the TNC versus MVP rivalry interesting in 2016 is that this is where Mushi's career is starting to go into decline. And it's a funny thing, because I know you talked to Kips in your last episode, and Fnatic are going to go get top four TI in 2016. But for most of the season, it's still a story about decline for Mushi. And... Between 2016-2017, like he ends up coming back and winning a major DAC. Like Mushi's got that resilience in him. There's, don't get me wrong, but as as a player, he he started showing signs of decline, and because of that, there was this sort of like, well, Fnatic might not be the best team forever. Um, there's going to be room for another team to step up, and TNC and all the domestic events were dominating, and MVP in the lands were dominating, and so the SEA scene really started expanding at this stage. And again, like I said fr- from the start. Also, just from a sort of a, in an abstract sort of academic sense, there's these two teams that added a new component, the, the speed component that sort of like let's bring something new to the discussion of, of international Dota, which before SCA was just kind of like there's this one strong team, Fnatic, and like they have average finishes and there's not much to talk about, kind of thing. I like it. Okay, so now we're getting into the the real shit of this late game. Um, so MVP gets wiped trying to engage at the Roche Pit without QO. Raven is terrifying. He now has Assault Cure Ass. 
and uh, and Aegis, I think. So TNC goes high ground. This is in the radiant middle lane. You know, QO and Forever, they're trying to make space. Got the AoE deafening blast, vacuum wall. QO dies, the immediate buyback. But then we cut to the dire top lane, and MP has taken a full lane of racks. Now, Aiden, I saw you wrote this down. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal your, your question here. Who could have made that call? I mean, was that was that MP saying, "Buy me some time. I'm going to take this Rax." Was that QO saying, "We'll buy you some time." I mean, what what do you what do we think is the story there? And I'll ask Scant. So, I mean, there's a few things that go into this. The one is, I'm pretty sure I watched I watched through the game again, but I think one of the discussions that Hades and I were having with the whole game long was what uh, item build Ember Spirit should be going for, and yes. uh, and I think he was going more damage. He hadn't bought the BKB. And I think that one of the factors that goes into, well, let's rather split push is I've got the damage, but if I go into the fights, I'm actually not that useful right now. It's very easy for them to shut me down, and then I just die and the game's over. Um, another factor that goes into those is really just that MVP knew that TNC were really, really bad at these high-pressure late-game situations. They were really good at fighting early on. They were really good at matching the pace. But when it came to like the big sort of higher-level strategic decisions under a lot of pressure, they weren't good at that. They just They had a weakness for that. And so I think there's probably a sense where someone in MVP was like, this was really the advantage of split push ever since Alliance and TI3, you know, that you you mentally you get an advantage over your opponents because they have to do this or that, whereas you've sort of committed to what you're doing. You're getting an advantage regardless. And they're sort of like freaking out because every second that passes, they're being pulled apart. Um, no, it's exactly right. And uh, we would be... We wouldn't be giving them enough credit if we didn't also mention QO's, or sorry, not QO's, but MVP's exceptional uh, teamfight execution. I mean, Febby taking QO on the snowball ride to dodge a spell, but also get to the back lines of the fight. Meanwhile, MP's killing Sam H. Uh, so that's like, it's a 4 0 uh, exchange for MVP, 5 0 if you count the Aegis. And then QO. Uh, heads immediately to the dire base, forces a buyback. TNC had been ahead big af- uh, going into that high ground push. And so, but I thought after that team wipe and, and after forcing the buyback, that MVP had moved to maybe like a 60% favorite in the game. About right, Aiden? It was really hard. I, I, I don't know. Um, it was very hard to tell. I mean, yeah. there's this little big lead. Buybacks were a little bit close. Um, <laughs> in, in one respect, I think actually it would have been a little bit. Um, I found, it, I found it a little bit harder to evaluate those things because with the old casting, with the old overlay, it was a lot harder to tap all the information right at your fingertips. So there are definitely times where I was like looking around being like, wait, yeah. what do I know? Uh, what don't I know? Or what don't I know? Um, <laughs> right. What like was that. the net worth implication of that? So what happens next? Then then MVP do the same thing. They try and push bot racks and it goes poorly. Yep. Right. <laughs> they, they return the favor, uh, so to speak. They force buybacks. Um, but TNC kills them. Yeah, well, and not only does TNC kill them in their base, TNC then rushes back to the MVP base and kills QO like six inches from his fountain. Oh, yeah, they tried to save him so hard. Yules, the multiple four staffs. I don't think he ever gets the blink off. Yeah. Um, he tries. Um, and th- that's no buyback. And the game is but over yeah. for all purposes. The game is over. The game is over, right? Five TNC heroes alive. They're attacking the tier four towers with terrifying Raven and his assault cuirass. And then... And T- MP almost dies because Teehee finds him with the uh, with the ice path, and so the well, Raven, <laughs> it looks like MP dies yeah, once, and then he almost dies a second time. He barely survives a second time. That's right. That's right. Um, and somehow they wear him down, and 
ultimately TNC nearly take the rack, nearly take the throne. It gets down to 250 HP, but they've used all of their buybacks and they're all dead. And MVP just go back and win the game. Well, and just agonizing to watch. And I and I rewatched that sequence a few times just so I could make the notes on it. You got the ancient, you know, Sam H hitting it when it's about 600 HP, gets down to 400 HP when Sam H dies. AU hitting the throne once, dying. Winter G hitting it. Uh, it's at 200 HP. Then you got Jakiro coming in with the liquid fire. You're like, okay, this is it. This is it. Uh, but they hit, they hit the glyph. They kill Tihi, and then uh, then it really is over. So. I have two interesting points, one of which uh, I want to comment on, one of which, um, Scant, I think you comment on during the cast, which is that Raven gets God's strength up, but doesn't have the mana for it. Mm. Um, and I didn't actually, I couldn't actually check what his mana was before every, at every point, but I, have a, I, I think he gets hit by an EMP very early on before QO dies, and then steadily, like, you know, he just never gets the mana back up. But And that's a huge, that's a huge problem. The... Second little minor thing, which I actually, again, don't know exactly what happened, but I know what the result was, is Jakiro dies, he dies on the Jakiro, distracting them, um, distracting MVP while Raven hits the throne. He then buys back and he has travels and he does not use them to come back to the bit. He walks the entire way. I can see it on the minimap. I don't, I can't see, I didn't see what his cooldown on his travels was, but he walks the entire way from dire base to as a radiant base. And I can only assume that if he had had travels up that the game, that he would have been able to get in there and do 250 points of damage while they were finishing off everybody else. Um, And so the question I have, and I just couldn't figure it out because he, at one point he's hiding in the trees, but right before he dies is I is, does he try and TP out of the base Mm. thereby putting his travels on cooldown? Um, It's the only thing that makes sense to me. Um, And I have, I, I imagine there's no way you remember that little detail, but it really is fascinating to me, like because something must have happened, and without going back and like watching it from his perspective, I don't know if we'll figure it out. But uh, um, it's a, it's like the, it, this is like the little tiny things. He must have used it because there were creeps he could TP to. Well, well, if he tried to TP out, that's obviously a misplay, right? right. That's yes. Um, I'm not. I I I can't remember though. That's... I mean, the only other option I could think of was he tried to TP back in and TP to a creep that died immediately. Mm. Yeah. Um, but the last thing, the last comment I want to make on here, and I and I think this is a um, again important for us to understand is like you say that MP, TNC makes bad decisions late games, or they didn't make good decisions. I guess is a better way of putting it. Sure. So in this moment, I thought there was the first thing I noticed. And I hadn't thought about it in terms of like they just make don't make good decisions. But my question was who is making the call there? What we have is we have at least two heroes, Sam H, Jakiro, maybe th- uh, and uh, Winter G at least. I remember are trying to k- finish off the last. The, uh, finish off MP, finish off um, who else is alive at that point? Forever, M- Febby, maybe whoever's alive. Mm-hmm. Of, I mean, people are trying to finish them off. Meanwhile, Raven is hitting the throne or hitting the T4s in the throne. It felt to me like if they just all hit the th- throne in T4s, the game ends before uh, QO respawns. It also felt to me that if Raven comes and hits MP like once or twice when, when they've got him locked down, he dies. Game's also over. Do you think that there was a call? Raven hit the hit things will provide space. Do you think it was mixed signals? I mean, what do you think? I mean, or is this just like a, a situation where it was chaos and no one was making a call? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, AU is probably the one normally making the calls there. T he's also a very talkative guy, but my my instinct is that if you've ever been around Filipino Dota teams and like when the game gets to this stage and like it's that hectic, they're just all screaming. That's they basically they they're, they're lakad maratagging. That's yeah. what's happening. 
and and so like communication can't be very good because everyone is screaming random shit. Maybe one guy's already celebrating having one, another one is screaming hit the throw and it, I mean it's one of those things that over the last few years have improved a lot in teams like TNC, the the discipline, the communication, the structure. But it wasn't there yet back then. Yeah. Um so I think it's it's probably very noisy, the comms at that stage. Yeah. I mean it just it just felt like there wasn't necessarily a right or wrong call there, but they just needed to all pick one. Someone need to make it type of moment. Yep. Yeah, which is which is often what captaincy is all about, is just having a call, right? Right. Agreed. All right. Well, so that that base sequence is certainly a nominee for the most rewatchable moment of this series. Um, given that I had to rewatch it like eight times to uh to, to get my head around what happened. Yep. And it's 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 really amazing, as you said, like how desperately they I especially like Winter G on the lion when he's sort of like He's got the lowest damage and he's got a few hits in and then he like blinks to the side and gets a few more hits in. Yep. <laughs> like just scrambling for the damage, but yeah. wasn't to be. And I think actually, I don't know if you guys watched to the end of the VOD, but I'm pretty sure at the end of that game when MVP wins, one of the MVP players actually says classic TNC versus MVP. Mm-hmm. I screenshotted it, yes. <laughs> yeah, which is which like and that tells you everything you need to know about this rivalry. <laughs> yes, very much. I think we should talk about game two, guys. Wow, this is a very different conversation, I feel like. <laughs> very different conversation. All right. Uh, and I have to open this one with uh, uh, a great scant moment where he says, what do you call someone who is already hyped? And now, all right, I guess I'm hyped squared. <laughs> nice. Nice. So, yeah, I was a fan of that call. And immediate invoker ban from TNC. I think they were tired of that hero. And they ended up first picking it in game three. I think they were really tired of having of seeing QO on that hero. But I wanted to open this one with a general question. Well, okay. Well, I'm going to ask Scant this. I want to ask Scant this first. Do you believe that this was always intended to be a timing push, or do you believe that kind of the stars just happened to align for a timing push? Or and I'm sure the truth is somewhere in between. But which one is closer? Uh, I think it's the latter. I mean, I'm telling you, like that's. When when uh, AU picked Chen, he knew at the start of the game he was going to buy a hand of Midas. Right. You know, now the the guy who picks Chen and plans to buy a hand of Midas isn't thinking I'm going to rax in seven minutes. Mm-hmm. Like that's what's happening there is they're getting to the tower and they're realizing no one can defend and they're like, well, let's go more and no one can defend. Well, let's go more and that's and the important point there is is the sort of speed of the decision making because. But that situation doesn't happen. They don't get those raxes if they're hesitating for 10 seconds every time, having a discussion, having a meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we see the sort of the flip side of, I was talking about earlier, like there's a weakness in the late game where there isn't a clear sort of command line and communication. But in the earlier game, in the mid game, in those sort of scenarios, there's just a, a shared understanding that allows for the team to play really fast. I like that. Okay, so even if it wasn't necessarily planned, Aiden, I want to ask you now, what are the ingredients of a really good timing push lineup? Because the answer is not five push heroes. Right, well, I mean, I think the the answer, I mean, you say that a timing push, an early timing push. Um, Yes. (laughs) Let's be very clear there. Um, I mean, you got to have summons of some sort um, or creeps. um, So they have both Chen and Furion who's got that. Um, You really want to have some sort of healing. Um, Yes. Juggernaut's healing ward provides that here. Um, and you want to have auras. Um, and they didn't have, I mean, I guess they had the, they had the Kila and the Bassy in this. Um, and I guess eventually the drums, two drums, th- three. They got, th- I'm looking at it right now. They got three drums in this game. Um, <laughs> I did not know that until right this second. Um, but more importantly, I think it's, it's that vengeful spirit um, damage aura um, is the third sort yep. of piece that gives them the damage. 
Um, so I would say that's and, and and I would say disables. I think dis, I think disables are an oft overlooked part. Is if you can't fight at all, uh, your your timing push isn't isn't going to work. Yeah, you you want you, you certainly you, you want it to be the case that anyone who stumbles too close to the building you're trying to kill just gets exploded. Yep, that's important. Yeah, nukes, I suppose. I feel like that's sort of a um, the open AI strategy. Like this felt like that. Mm-hmm. Like we're going to group yeah. up five, and if you show your face, you're dead. Um, mm-hmm. We dare you. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I mean, this is this is one of the oldest concepts in Dota, actually. So if you go all the way back to TI1, I don't know if you guys were watching then, but uh, a big part of Navi's push strategies was Nightstalker. And like, it's not because Nightstalker pushes really fast. It's just because if you're pushing at nighttime and there's a Nightstalker, no one no one's coming near the tower because you're just going to dive them. It's very sure. Um, Love it. So go ahead. We get yeah. So um, and I, I I don't. Other than MVP doesn't draft any wave clear, and I think you point this out in the cast. There's, they don't really have wave. Maybe uh, right at the end, you say like you can't have any no no wave clear against this lineup. They don't have any wave clear, but other than that, it doesn't seem to me like it's like some excessively greedy draft. You sort of have this like tide hunter up front. You think you can maybe like tank a little bit with. Um, and I guess one of the one of the big what if questions here is what happens if MVP don't royally screw up the pre horn activity. Yes. Um, so like I mean, what happens do they do they get enough of that so like first of all there's two five-man smokes everyone remembers when dota was like that it's kind of a it's like a very much a not a thing anymore like no one smokes pre-horn i feel like uh but tnc they kill the witch doctor dubu a witch doctor without blowing uh juggernaut spin and for some reason mvp says that's cool we can fight you um and it turns out very poorly um, they lose two more, and I, mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess I guess the question here is like, does, does do you think this game goes differently? Do you think TNC gets enough of an advantage to snowball without that little early lead benefit? Um, it's difficult to say. My sense of why why MVP wanted to fight this because I think I can't remember exactly, but I think they still thought they had a numbers advantage. They hit an arrow. Um, they hit a nice arrow on some mm. on somebody. I think. But I want to right. say it was like a lion. It's like, is that really mm-hmm. going to change the... But uh, uh, as for how the game would go, personally, I wasn't a huge fan of that draft for MVP because I think Cure is playing OD, right? Yes, that's yes. right. And that's and I, and I feel like that was never going to be a good Cure hero because Cure wants to be a hero that like does tons of flashy in-your-face stuff. And OD's, like OD sort of can be that hero. There's some classic games where Arteezy did that. But you need to have like insane farm. And Kuro wasn't a player who was known for like diligently farming and getting big then doing things. Like he wanted to just be able to go and go and go and like just feel an impulse to go and then go. So I was always like less confident in in his games when he was playing those kind of like heavy farm heroes. Right. And they were trying to do the OD Marana combo, which was thoroughly countered by the Juggernaut pick. Yes. 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 And also it doesn't help that Febby he missed some arrows early game. Um, as great as his Tusk was in game one, I would say this was not his best work. Um, there's one moment where he like tries to arrow a Chen creep and just like whiffs <laughs> it really badly um, in the Radiant Jungle. It was a tough moment. Tough moment. Um, we're we're seeing no no evidence that uh, that an explosion is coming. And as a matter of fact, uh, what we saw in the early game was a botched smoke from TNC. Both supports rotate to mid um, and then reveal themselves really awkwardly. And QO is like, oh, they're here to gank me? I'll just walk away. And there's no way TNC are going to be able to parlay this into any kind of advantage. But those two supports 
walk to the bottom lane. Um, Sam HTP's there. TNC, they kill Forev on his Tide Hunter. They take the tier one. Then Forev casually TPs in to the tier two. He dies immediately, as you were saying, and you need to blow, blow them up immediately if they walk anywhere near. Tier two is dead. And then this is to, to Scant's point that this can't have been planned. There's some milling around right outside uh, after the tier two goes down. Is are we really doing this, guys? Yeah, I think we're really doing this. And so they kill Forev the third time. Nature's Prophet Ultimate uh, takes down Febby to 20% HP. And finally, finally, MVP decides to send all five heroes to this fight. And they, they do get some kills there. AU, Raven, Teehee, all dead. But we look back at the lane, and that Dark Troll Summoner is getting the last hits on the, uh, on the melee racks. And suddenly that's an eight-minute eight minute lane of racks for TNC. So like the story of the game for me doesn't end there, even though that's obviously a huge standout part of the game. But what I remember being really interested in in this game is that after getting this massive advantage, TNC actually shows some discipline, which is like, it's, it's, it's signs of development early on in this team because they, they go back and get Midas's on the Chen, on the Nature's Prophets. Um, and they do, they do win fairly quickly after getting the early side of Rex. It doesn't take that long, but they don't go all in because they know that that's kind of their last condition. Now, normally that's not the way they'd be thinking, but it's impressive to me that they did sort of have that presence of mind that stage because it showed that they're you know not just as not as one dimensional as people were were saying they were. And I will say, QO is dangerous at this point. He has for all this is not a great QO. Like the OD um, has farmed well, got three kills, and I mean it. It's not the. You wouldn't say that the rate the TNC team is particularly well equipped to handle a good Sanity's Eclipse. Um, they are not yes. super tanky. If Jug isn't spinning, he might die instantly. Um, VS Chen, Nature's Prophet, Lion, none of them are these tanky balls. So I, I do think they they wisely know they can't just like leave it all out. The truth is that if you get an early side of Rex and Dota, the the biggest advantage that really is is well. Now you're going to know where your opponents are all the time. Like you have that information. They're getting less gold. It's taking them longer to clear the waves, and you constantly know where they are. So you just get map control. Like it, it can always be made into an economic advantage if you have the patience for it. And they double down on that economic advantage with the Chen and Nature's Prophet double Midas, which they have done, they have online by twelve minutes. And scant. It was funny to hear you say that um, AU had been planning to build that Midas from minute one, <laughs> but it turned out to be a great decision here. That's just how he played Chen at the time. And it's like, you know, Midas is one of these funny items where like my understanding is that right now Midas is not so popular in Dota, but it, it, you know, it comes in and out. Um, sometimes it's very popular. Sometimes it's not popular at all. At this time it wasn't actually that popular, but he had this view that certain heroes should just buy it. And it's something I had discussed with him. And the thinking was basically that, Obviously, if, if you get to a situation in the game where you have 2,000 gold and your team desperately needs you to have a certain item, you buy that item. But if you get to the situation in the game where you have the money and there's no pressing need, like, it's just, I mean, it's just basic economics, you know? Like, yep. Biomidas, you'll get the items you needed anyway, um, but you'll have a whole lot more experience along the way. Mm -hmm. And he was very good at eking out that value. Uh, AU was certainly one of the more creative uh, Southeast Asian players of all time, I think, actually. In fact, he, um, funny enough, he had a, a, a support invoker that he played sometimes. He had 
uh, when they picked Meepo, he would play Meepo and Tihi would go to position four. Um, so he was like a very versatile, interesting player with a lot of, lot of ideas about the game. Well, there are not too many more notes on this game because really it was a, a nice methodical victory from TNC from this point. But the, uh, the second phoniest moment of the series, I thought, happened in the mid game of this game, which is where so Tihi and Raven are just uh, kind of standing by the tier two mid tower, getting some chip damage. QO TPs in, so they decide to run away. MVP is the entire team is chasing Raven, uh, who's playing core vengeful spirit here. He swaps Tihi into his spot, and Tihi spins away. And I just thought I, I thought it was so beautiful that the entire MVP team is uh, is chasing this guy who is suddenly spelled immune. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of reminiscent of the the Venge Task play from the previous game that Aiden was talking about, right? And it, again, it it happens sort of like in a moment because there's no time otherwise. They're going to be split like the Venge and the Jug were going to be running opposite directions if they didn't do it right away. Yep, there's a cool moment as well, which like where I think uh, TNC were thinking about pushing mid, the tier two, and MVP set up a Marana ulti to go in and fight them. And TNC sort of smelt a wrath, pulled out. And there's this, there's this beautiful cut where like, you sort of have the juggernaut just standing on top of the ramp with a sentry ward saying, come at me. Um, and MVP sort of pulled back because obviously they were just hoping to catch TNC out. Right. And it's another one of those moments where I feel like in, in a very small in a matter of seconds, a team sort of just gets a read for the other team and adjusts, and it makes a huge difference to a game. No, I've got that written down. I said, I got it written. TNC uh, reads, a, reads a Moonlight Shadow gank, really, you know, perfectly. <laughs> Very good. And ultimately, I mean, I think at this point, the game is somewhat decided. I mean, I, uh, I will give another little credit for um, for AU. He does a good job. MVP tries to sneak, sneak a Roche at um, yeah. 17 minutes, and he scouts it with the Chen creep, and TNC then, and like, Obviously, MVP can't fight it. Like they're trying to sneak it. Um, MVP catch them, get it. They get the Roche. Just keep in the game is now officially really over. <laughs> well, yeah, you get the Chen eggs, and so I mean, right? This this MVP team who's already behind in gold and didn't have anything to deal with. Uh, you know, Scant, you mentioned this during the broadcast. Uh, ancient creeps. So <laughs> you get the Chen eggs, and you got the uh, the Black Dragon and the Granite Golem, both with the Drum of Endurance, just hitting the Tier Three Tower. That's got to be so demoralizing and. Yeah, the two lanes of racks were down in a matter of 25 seconds, I think. The remaining two lanes of racks. And that was GG. Because of uh, all right, because because of my time, I want to I want to get through game 3 a little faster. Mm-hmm. And so Aiden, I'm going to ask you to kind of walk us through the the biggest sure. highlights of game three and then i think we should get to the awards for this series um so the first thing is uh i saw about this is that this is one of the most classic drafted games like i mean i think of like these two teams being like wow this really feels like tnc versus mvp for a lot of these players um qo pl forev ds um febby tusk dubu vengeful spirit all exactly who i expect to have um, less obvious for TNC, but certainly Raven, uh, Dro, and Sam H. Broodmother are both kind of classic heroes. Um, and even once uh, we've seen the the um, Broodmother already. Um, the big thing, I think the big thing here, you mentioned this earlier, is, is that um, Tihi trying to get first blood, always. Mm-hmm. Um, he outplays PL, the QO mid. That was so cool. So nicely. QO, I mean, I, I think it's a clear kill. QO dives him. He's running around. He doesn't use his fairy fire for ever um 
waits until he gets cold snap up um, and the illusions die. And then he uses fairy fire to, to be, because he knows QO's otherwise QO probably would have backed out at that point when his illusions are down and um, cold snaps back up, but he gets him uh, for the first blood. Um, but other than that, TNC is struggling mightily hard this game. Um, he, they've got a they've got a jungle enigma and every lane is struggling. Uh, Forev's having a good game. MP's having a good game. QO's having a good game. Um, the every, every, I, mean, I just wrote literally Enigma is being punished and MVP yes. has the heroes to punish. They've got a Lesh to push towers. They've got um, a Darkseer to deal with the Broodlings to some extent. But things start to go a little bit better in the mid-game. Um, the And particularly what happens is at 14 minutes, one of the really i think depressing plays for ever ever seen for a team is when febby four man black snowballs into a black hole yes um uh and and then tnc take rush rush and that basically makes the game even again um even though at this point mvp have taken all the outer towers basically by 50 by i think that take out 17 minutes and this this becomes in the nature of the game right a game slows down a little bit and most of the question is, um, and you even say it multiple times in the cast, you say like, you know, MVP is doing like, you know, they're trying to avoid the black hole. They can't group up for it. And you also say like the threat of the black hole is way bigger than the actual black hole, um, which proves uh, to be yeah. true. Quote, um, no black hole is better than a bad black hole. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Um, and I mean, the same to some extent is true of the vacuum wall combo. Um, and essentially that's what happens. Like you, uh, like, I mean, like that's what it's all about. It's about dodging those two abilities. Um, and MVP obviously did a poor ga- job in the mid game of doing it, but they start doing a better job after this. Um, one funny moment is Tihi goes for a gank on Invoker, but he just like ghost walks through somebody before the rest of his team is there. And MVP are like, hmm, this is curious. Like, <laughs> uh, perhaps we should back up a little bit. Um, and then um, I thought this was a really interesting comment from you, and I quoted it. At 28 minutes, you say, I think the two right-click cores are the least important player heroes in this game. And I, I, I suspect what you, like, not so much that they're least important. If they're, they're the least interesting because they're going to do what they're going to do no matter, like, like, you know, you could just, like, right-click down the map and it wouldn't matter. Like, like they're going to they're gonna help determine fights, but, like, anyone could play them at that point. Yeah, they, they could be bots. That's kind of Yeah, they could be thinking. bots, exactly. Yeah. Um, which, which happens more often than people realize, actually. Um, is this like ongoing thought that I've had for a very long time about Dota that people, people when they think about DPS, they think about how much damage would you deal against like an idle unit in front of you yeah. in a second. And what they're not thinking about is like the person in your team that disables that unit is actually adding DPS, right? Because they give you more seconds. And a lot of the time in a game of Dota, it matters much more what kind of control you have than like the actual damage output. Absolutely. Um, so that this game I felt like was very much the case where like what the, what the utility role players were doing was what was actually defining the outcome of the game. Absolutely. Um, so the at 30 minutes, basically, it, it finally reached the breaking point. Um, there's a weird engagement that it's kind of hard to follow entirely. Um, they cha- TNC chased Dubu, but he gets away. Meanwhile, in the back lines, QO is faking at um, the Enigma and. Au, I think he's trying to can- he's trying to cast, and he realizes he wants to cancel the black hole, but it goes off anyways before he cancels it, and we get yeah, like just a, a blip, a blip of a black hole, and MVP smells blood, 
um and they go yes. for it and they take they kill four for one they push high ground they take the t3 um there's this little cute moment where they um where qo now has a heart um so he's hard to blow down on his pl uh blow up um and there's a cute little point where like he gets stunned and um winter g is trying to follow up with a lion stun and while the impale is going through uh forev surges the qo who's who was able to move laterally enough to dodge the impale and I don't know that QO would have died there, but there's like just a little bit of a chance that might have been able to turn it. But it was a nice little uh, surge dodge of that. Um, but basically here, and you, I think you say it um, uh, most times, is like AU basically doesn't black hole for this entire like high ground siege until the very end. And he doesn't do it because Dubu is so disciplined being back so far, and he is ready to cancel the black hole at any moment. That's, that's the only way MVP loses. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I think you even say at the very end, you say that Dubu is the MVP of the game because he of his play the last 10 minutes. Yeah, and it, I mean, he actually did it quite badly earlier on in the game. Right. He was getting caught in the black holes, but as soon as he sort of identified this is the only way we're losing, he, he has that sort of sense of purpose about him. And it's, I think one of the things I said in the cast is sometimes viewers think this thing is simple. Well, Venge counts as Enigma, so eventually just stand back and deal with the Enigma. But he takes it sort of to the extreme in like a really, really positive way in that game where he just doesn't get baited into being part of the action at all. He stands on the outskirts, he has full mana, he's got his stun up, he's got his swap up, and he just absolutely refuses, he completely abstains from participation because there's just this one thing I need to do. And I, I think that takes like enormous discipline. I think that's very, very hard, um, even when you know that this is your main role. Uh, it's really easy to be dragged in just a little bit to do this one little thing. Right. I mean, how many times you sit there, you're like, oh, ooh, is that core going to get away? I better stun him. And you creep a little bit too close. And then boom. Exactly. Yeah. Especially with that short range VS done. Uh, let's do, let's hand out some awards. And I suggest we should start with uh, uh, the obvious and unsung heroes. So the obvious hero of game one, I think was QO. Got the flashy plays on the invoker. Um, but who was the unsung hero of game one uh game one yes <laughs> an abrupt shift of gears yeah i don't know if there was one that was that like that unsung yeah. or something like that but i would have to probably say febby um i guess or maybe 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 mp for making the call of taking raxes i don't know it's like there isn't an obvious like undersung hero there um mm-hmm. mostly because mvp had enough mistakes and good plays that it's kind of hard you can always like be like, well, Fabi played really well here and here, but also messed up there. Um, yeah, and I, I, to be honest, I think Cure is the only player in that game who is like an absolute standout individual performance. Agreed. Yeah. So, uh, what about game two? I mean, I, it's, is it, do you find it is it even possible to give a unsung hero award in a push strat? Um, I didn't write one down. I mean, I like, I guess I would give credit to Sam H just because what what you don't see in the series actually is that Sam H is a player who was almost always being sacrificed by TNC. And they asked him to be a bit more of a core throughout this entire series. Um, he was buying Midas's on Brood, on Nature's Profits, on, which is sort of like something that stood out a bit to me, that mm. here's a guy who was always just doing whatever his team needed, sure. even when that thing was to like be a bit more selfish. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, actually, I like that call. I think maybe of the whole series, MH is the unsung hero. Um, there are a couple games on the Broodmother. I think game one in particular, he has a bad start, but by mid-game is like number one in, in uh, net worth and is 
causing hack. It's that early orchid that really messes up MP's life for 20 minutes or so. Yeah, and he, and he participates in team fights quite well on the breed, which some breed players struggle with, I think. Let's get to the poor man's shield award. Um, and we will, I'll, I'll throw Lorton's um, ideas in here as well. This is the award for the item, hero build, game mechanic, or strategy, something about Dota that you forgot existed um, before going back and watching this game. Um, so I have four, um, four, four nominations here. My first nomination was Brood being invisible. God, I forgot about that. Um, <laughs> five man smokes out of base. Um, I forgot about that also. Um, right, right at the, before the horn. Um, Ember's not building defensive items. Like, sure, I see it in my pubs every once in a while, but you no longer see a pro player build no defensive items on Ember. Like, it would never happen. And um, Lorton's biggest nomination was the just the just pwn terminology. Whenever you kill someone, just pwn ahead for XX gold. Now it's just that little sword thing or like that. Right. Um, so, which of those do you think you had forgotten the most about? Well, I really missed the the just pwned. I mean, I that's they should bring that back. Like, what? Well, I would agree. I think if you'd asked me, like, if you'd asked me about the other ones, like, what did what was were brood skills five years ago? I probably would have been able to come up that he was invisible. I would have had no. I would have completely forgotten that it said pwned. Um, yeah. So okay, I like it. Let's. Uh, oh, so we have a new award. Um, we haven't finalized the name. But this is the uh, the scant um, award for most or underselling underselling a, mo- a moment um, of casting emotionally emotional undersell maybe I don't know I don't know what do you do you have an opinion on this uh, the exact terminology for your uh, the award that we're gonna name after you you know I used to have a friend who I played cards with and he told me that I had a a special knack of delivering important points in a sardonic monotone. Um, do you want to call it this this the, <laughs> this, this the scant poker tone or the poker face <laughs> the scant yeah. poker face award i like it okay so i've got two nominations for it uh one is right after that qo um the qo great play in game one um you say this is one of the best plays i've ever seen in dota with about that emotion a much better accent but uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then at the end of game one you say this is one of the most awesome game dota games i've seen in my life um, maybe slightly more enthusiastic there. Um, and as a little side note, I thought that's partic- I thought that was particularly funny because when you suggested this series, you were like, "Man, game two is really what it's all about." And lo and behold, I'm like, <laughs> I'm watching this. I'm like, wait, scan. Like, why don't you just for game one? Uh, so I, I don't know if you have an opinion on what we want to give our inaugural uh, scant poker tone award to. But uh... I'm happy with either of them. You know, it's it's funny when I when I used to cast a lot. Um, one of the pieces of feedback I got more than once was that. People thought it would be good if I smiled more while I was casting. <laughs> and it was something that always amused me because I was like, but they can't see me. And, and they were like, but that's not the point. It's like, you can hear a smile, but it's just like, you know, I think sometimes part of my nature, like I'm in that sort of analytical mode and then it just comes out in the presentation. I, I actually mostly like it because I find it like distracting when both the caster and the analyst are both being super hype. It's like too much. Like I like the contrast. Um, hmm. Yeah. So a fan um lord i'm, I'm implied to go with um the awesome uh, or the uh, um the amazing play the most uh one of the best plays i've ever seen in dota one yeah i think i think the most understated tone should win this one like for example when scant said he was hyped squared um that was probably the most enthusiastic i heard him the entire time so hyped squared yeah. is, is absolutely like out for this award so i guess we're at apex mountain and signature hero yeah okay so See, I guess the so Apex Mountain is were any of these players at their peak in this game 
or in this series or even like right around like maybe in this tournament you would also even argue like is this is this peak febby is this peak raven are any of these players there it's it's part i mean the the invoker play is probably peak cure like i don't i don't think he did anything better than that in his career um like he did some some of the things he did that will stand out more to people on different heroes like especially phantom assassin Mm -hmm. but but yeah i i I think like if he wanted to make a show reel to join a team like he'd still use that definitely fair totally fair i like it Uh, yeah i felt that way too it was um i feel like most of the other players they, they played well but i've seen better moments from them i would say Okay. And finally, this this is a new one, but we I'm, we added this one here. Um, signature heroes. Were in any of the games, were these guys playing their signature hero, the hero that you think of most when you think of that player? And I'll start here. I think Ferev's Darkseer, which he plays in games one and three, right? I think that is the hero I most associate with Ferev. Um, would you agree? Yeah. So I think that I think that's that, yeah. that's his signature hero. Yeah. Anybody else playing their signature hero in this, would you call it? Forever, definitely, that's right. I think probably Febby's Tusk as well. I think that's been a signature hero of his for many years since as well. Well, talk to us about Raven Drow. You mentioned it during the cast, but I mean, uh, Raven Drow was kind of a, a closet signature hero for him because he played it a lot in regional play, but you didn't see it as much in international. It's, it's complicated because actually the teams, so like when the team first rose up, Draw was absolutely their signature strategy, but Raven wasn't in the team at that stage. And so he kind of like, they had a different character player called Gene Noji, mm-hmm. uh, who was a much weaker player than Raven, but he was sort of like this Drow specialist. So Raven ended up playing it because he joined the team that played the hero a lot, but I don't think it was ever like his thing. And you'll have seen that subsequently, it's not a hero that he's played that often in his sort of recent years. Um, so I, w- I, I'm not sure I'd give it to him as a signature hero. Would you, what would you, what are the first, he- what's the first hero you think of when you think of Raven? First hero? Uh, Sven, maybe? I, I would throw in, um, there was that period, and it may have just been the time, but there was a period where his terror blade was exceptional. Like, yes. Um, yeah. I think that's maybe what I associate with him. Mm, yeah. Most. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that would be next. I would be between Sven yeah. and terror blade for sure. Yeah. I associated with him with a hero that like, Farms a lot really quickly and then deals a lot of damage. That's kind of like his thing. Um, the other one I'll throw out there as a possibility is Sam H on a Broodmother. Now, this is not the hero I think of when Sam H. I actually kind of think of, of Batrider a lot when I think of Sam H. Um, yeah. But do you? But you, I think, say that that's a very that's. I think in the cast you say it's a signature. Do you? Do you? Would you? I mean, and you probably and you know Sam H probably better over his career than I do. So would you call Broodmother his one of his signature hero? I mean, it was at the time, but I don't think over over like several years it was like for a few months. Okay. At that period, it was a signature for his because it was a hero that was very strong at the time, and because mostly Sam H's role in TNC was to like be sacked to do something for the rest of his team, and Brood was sort of a very good hero for doing that at that stage because it could pull a lot of enemies to it on its own quite easily. It's actually, I think, a, another big part of why they struggled in Game 3 of the series we discussed. Because if you notice, there's a Brood in Game 1 and Game 3, but in Game 1, uh, MVP aren't able to run the Darkseer against the Brood, whereas in Game 3, they, mm. they can. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's one of the things that TNC had sort of overlooked in the draft of that series. They didn't realize they'd be so punished for their jungle in the middle because they didn't realize that... Um, MVP would just one v one the brood and then dominate all the lanes as a result. Right. So I don't. I certainly I think when they picked brood for Sam H, it was because they thought 
this is a way we can get him to draw a lot of attention away from everyone else because that was kind of his general job in the team. Uh, anybody else, Lorton? Do you have any other? Uh, well, we didn't know this going into the series, but Tihi Jakiro. Yeah. Although, again, I mean, it was Tihi Jakiro was like a massive signature visit at the time. But if I had to like all time for Tihi, it's much more the agility, like melee agility heroes, or sometimes ranged as well. So, so we got we got the Juggernaut. That yes. might be in the yes. game too. Yes. I mean, right? so, so that's so like he. Both Jag and PL mid lane are things that he was the, the one to, you know, pilot for the first time. It's it's really it's really fascinating because I, I mean if that that's that may be a signature hero, but like of if, when you watch this series, him playing Jug is like not memorable at all, right? Because like that game is just like not is not about the individual hero plays. Yeah, and it's so short. Like you know, you're watching this, you watch him play Invoker and Jakiro for like forty minutes each, and you watch him play Jug for ten minutes, like. It's a very different experience. Yeah. Oh. He also, he also. The other thing about the jug is that he was playing. It was jug versus Odie, right? So it was like a. There's absolutely zero chance he's going to get first blood. You know, <laughs> it's like. Um, Fair. So you don't get like I don't. We actually didn't talk about it, but in, even in the first game when he was Jakiro against Invoker, he went for first blood. I don't know if you guys caught that. Like he, he took the Invoker to like 30 HP yeah. or something as like a level two Jakiro, which is like it's ridiculous. But unfortunately, Tihi these days is mostly playing one position from the safe lane, doesn't play mid anymore. Uh, the game kind of got away. Like, that's another interesting thing about back then. It's also part of why Kuro's career deteriorated is these days you have to be like 12 out of 10 mechanical skill to be a mid player. And wasn't always the case. Um, you could win at mid by being creative or smart or determined or like being good at seeing openings. Nowadays, like every mid player in every team is like, 10k MMR, um, because otherwise you just can't compete. I wonder if that, I mean, I guess that's like the explanation of why like someone like S4 had to switch out of mid, right? He couldn't, he wasn't mechanically skilled enough. But um, and even I mean, S4 even when he was playing mid was wasn't really playing mid. You know, he he was off laning from the mid lane. Okay, guys, I'm gonna I'm gonna start uh, signing us off for this episode. We didn't get a listener submitted sign sign off question. Shame on you, shame on you, listeners. <laughs> Now we we appreciate all the great questions that have been submitted over the past uh, over the past month or so. Uh, so I'm going to ask a question of my own, which is: uh, There's been plenty to complain about during the unexpected coronavirus quarantine era, uh, but there are positive developments going on in our lives and in the world. So please volunteer one uh, one silver lining of uh, of your new quarantine life. Uh, it can be a, as big or as small as you want it to. And while you're thinking about that, I'll remind our listeners that if you wanted to join our next watch party or our next rewatchable, join our Discord. You can find the link at glimpsepod.com. Remember to follow Scant on Twitter at S-C-A-N-T-Z-O-R. You can follow Aiden on Twitter at Omega Mandota, and I'm at Shark Butler. Uh, thanks, as always, to audio engineer Jason Bates. You can find his portfolio at BatesSound.com. All right, Aiden, silver lining of your quarantine. I mean, this, sound, this is going to be like a really lame one, but just like sleeping in, not getting up at 6.20 every morning and instead getting up at 8.00. Um, I'm definitely sleeping an extra hour a night, and that is, uh, I'm sure it's good for me. Um, it certainly feels good. Nice. Scant. I uh, have been putting more time into the Python course I'm taking. I actually recently made Tic-Tac-Toe, which probably isn't a big deal to anyone who knows how to code, but like, it was a really big deal to me. Like, I, I took two semesters of coding in college, and like being able to make Tic-Tac-Toe 
sounds exactly as impressive as uh, <laughs> um, I think you wanted to sound because yeah. I couldn't do that. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like landing a space shuttle. My sister and I are bo both write Python, and we tried to make Battleship one time over a, a long weekend, and <laughs> it was woefully inadequate. <laughs> Super hot. So yes, so, so you found you found the correct audience for this. Uh, for, you know, <laughs> tell us about this. That's awesome. Cool. All right, and uh, my silver lining is uh, been doing pull-ups. I can do I can do six pull-ups in a row. And that's more than. A, that's more than I could do when I was a college varsity swimmer. So I think that's that's definitely a silver lining. Yeah. I'm impressed. I can't do that. I can't do six. All right, guys. Until next time, this is Aiden Richards. Back you go. Thank you for listening to The Glimpse. I interrupted our date night. Wall of unintended consequences. Your hindsight analysis is 2028. <laughs> you guys definitely don't deserve a TI invite. Woo! Good job, guys! <laughs> oh, God. Optic yeah. did not finish last. They finished tied for last. The statistician rips his ugly head again. Right. I'm going to shit on your point. The hysterically stupid move. And we were fucking boned, boys. I remember that quite vividly. This is Adam Lorton. This is Aiden Richards. This is audio engineer Jason. Back you go. Back you go. Back you go. Back you go.